Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. And those of you joining us online, good morning to you also. Before we begin, I want to add to one of the announcements uh, that Pastor Mike made about uh, unmarried people cohabitating, living together out of wedlock. Mainly that's for believers. Um, Unbelievers come to a church, they can be this way. Well, we're trying to reach them with the gospel, but believers know better. Uh, there are exceptions and scenarios that we, I don't even want to go into that merit uh, case by case. But uh, essentially, that is the uh, meaning of that passage in well, those passages in the scripture. We are held to a higher standard and uh, we won't go asking you, hey, you, what are you doing? But if it comes to our attention, uh, we're going to address it. Well, I hope that makes you feel good about uh, what's coming. It is, uh, wouldn't you like to just come to God's house and praise the Lord and not have to deal with all of this human stuff about sinners? Uh, yeah, that's not reality. Uh, Satan would love that. Anyway, this morning we are in the book of Acts, chapter 4. We didn't complete uh, the intended session. Notice I said we didn't complete the intended uh, section last week, so we're continuing. We'll take verses 13 through 22. Acts of the Apostles, chapter 4, verse 13 through 22. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men. They marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it, but... When they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they may speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, They let them go, finding no way of punishing them, because the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done, for the man who was, for the man was over 40 years old, on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Please be seated. Obedient disobedience. That's the title for this morning's message. I guess the world would call it civil disobedience, uh, which is uh, acceptable many times, of course. This is going to be uh, two sermons in one, two teachings in one, two expositions in one, a lengthy introduction, and then we'll take the exposition of uh, the verses that we just uh, read. I don't apologize for using as much scripture as I can use in the pulpit or anywhere else, as a matter of fact. I think pastors who don't use scripture should apologize to God and to their congregations. Uh, Paul 
telling Timothy how to do church, because it doesn't come natural to us to know how to do church. The Bible talks about this. And this is one example in 1 Timothy. Paul says, Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. I want you to read scripture to them. I want you to encourage them to be obedient and be faithful and to persevere and to endure. And I want them to understand what God wants us to understand about himself and his relationship to sinners and sinners saved by grace. Who came up with this, Paul? Well, Christ did. Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scripture the things concerning himself. This is our pattern. This is, this is what's been taught to us. This has become doctrine. These are the things we read and we exhort with and we believe. Peter and John, going into the temple, encountered this lame man who was lame from birth and a beggar. And the man was healed. A great wonder. And then Peter began to give the word to explain what had just taken place as the crowds begin to uh, draw near to Peter and John where this event took place. Peter and John were making scripture and didn't even know it. What they were doing was becoming the word of God through their actions and through their preaching and through their lives. Why preach about the power that was available to the apostles of Jesus Christ when that same power seems unavailable to us? Why bother? Why go verse by verse? Why expound on Scripture? Why spend time in your private devotions? Why buy reference materials to understand as much as we can understand from every jot and tittle of God's Word if the same power is not available? I I want things to be meaningful. I don't want to just study the Bible just to study the Bible. Gideon had such a problem, and he voiced his problem. Judges chapter 6, the angel of Yahweh appeared to him, that is to Gideon, and said to him, Yahweh is with you, you mighty man of valor. Now Gideon is in the wine press threshing wheat. He's hiding. That's what he's doing there. The Midianites will come and take his wheat. And so, if he is a man of valor, he's thinking, why am I hiding? I'm not, I mean, he's not being modest. He's saying, this doesn't fit. This doesn't make sense. Well, to the natural mind, it does not. But God, of course, there's nothing natural about God. Everything about him is spiritual, divine, holy, sovereign, love. The attributes continue. Well, Gideon responds. And this is what we call a Christophany. This is an appearance of Christ in human form in the Old Testament, long before the virgin birth. Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if Yahweh is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not Yahweh bring us up from Egypt? But now Yahweh has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. You see, he said, what about all these Bible stories we've been getting about our, from our fathers about how God miraculously came in and dealt with Pharaoh and took the people through the Red Sea and did all of this stuff? How come, if, if this is so much a part of our relationship with God, our, our belief, our Bible, how come it's not happening to us? Why am I here hiding? 
Well, Gideon wanted to know the purpose of Bible study without miracles. That's what he was asking. Why study the Bible if I can't have the same miracles as the people who were used to create the Bible by God? As I mentioned, Peter and John, they're creating Scripture. Well, when Moses was doing his work in the wilderness and, and, and into Egypt and out of Egypt, it was creating Scripture. God was authoring this. Well, the short answer to, to Gideon is, well, Gideon, in that very Scripture that you boast in front of me, Deuteronomy 31 and other places makes it very clear. If you forsake God, he's going to forsake you. First, God says, I will not forsake you. Joshua comes along in chapter 24, that section, where, as for me and my house. We love that verse. And then he says, if you forsake God, he's going to forsake you. And these things are going to happen to you. And so the short answer to Gideon is, well, you're hiding, thrashing wheat like that because the people have been idolatrous. And they have been judged by God. To, to, uh, this is a judgment on them. To correct them. To get them to repent and turn to God. This is part of God's solution. The Bible tells us about believers suffering as believers without devaluing their scripture. There are other believers in scripture that have faced hardship without miracles, but they held to the God, word of God because it is true. Of course, the short answer, without questioning God's goodness, instead they remain loyal to him and his word. His purposes. Instead of blaming God for withholding miracles, they demonstrated faith in the face of hardship. Instead of, you know, being, you know, God, you had, you had tw 10 years to fix this and you've done nothing. I'm through. I'm not reading my Bible anymore. I know you're still there. I know you're still God, but I'm just not going to put myself through this anymore and try to expound on the scripture when I can't have a physical benefit to it. Well, that's not faith. Those, that's, those are terms dictated to God by perhaps someone who's in great pain, but wrong nonetheless. Those in the scripture were ready to die for obediently disobeying evil laws. They were willing to die <clears throat> if those are the terms that God had laid out before them for their life. You know, when Abraham was told, take Isaac now, your son, your, your beloved son, your only son whom you love, take him now and offer him a burnt offering to me. Abraham chops the wood, takes his two servants with Isaac to the land of Moriah far away, tells his two servants, wait here, the lad and I will return. Abraham did not know how God was going to do it, but he knew God was going to do it. And of course, God never had it in his mind to allow such a thing. He even covers that with Jeremiah as the other people are sending their children into the furnace. Other pagan religions are aborting their children. God says, that stuff never crossed my mind. It's a total test for Abraham. But he passed it. He believed God by faith. Paul says, Abraham did not waver. Man, I have wanted to be that. But I waver even in the little things. But not always. God is faithful. No matter how much I may suffer or be disappointed, 
by faith, I have enough information to conclude God is faithful. There is more to my sufferings than this lifetime. Daniel chapter 3 tells the story of Azariah, Mishael, and Hananiah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I just want to impress you. I hope I've done that. Anyway, there are these three Hebrew men, and the law says, you have to bow to my God. And they say, no, we don't. Daniel chapter 3, responding to the king, they say, our God is able to deliver us. But if not, if he doesn't choose to do it that way, Daniel 3.18, let it be known to you. Punk. No, they didn't say that, but that would have been a good place to put it if they could say it. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. They knew they were going to suffer and be cast into the furnace for this. Or worse, there are other... <laughs> Listen, those, the people in Persia had some pretty mean ways to put people to death. Slowly and painfully. But here it is. They did not need wonders and signs to believe God or to be delivered. They just needed to obey God. And that's what they did. Then there's Daniel in the same, very, in the same book. Now, these, this, this is at a time when the people of God are judged. They're under judgment as a people, not necessarily as individuals go. But as a people, they're, they're in <coughs> captivity. For disobeying God. And here we find them in captivity. Instead of whining. Oh well, this is not fair. You know we're the people of God. Where is the answer of our fathers. And all that other stuff. Instead of doing that. They are like lilies among thorns. They're letting their light shine in the dark place. Darius the king loved Daniel. As a testimony to the benefit of letting that light shine in the dark place. Daniel 6. When Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. And in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. Here is a man saying, the world is falling apart around me. And the world wants to fall upon me. I have to do what I do. They're going to do what they do. God is my God. They're not going to stop me from praying to him. This is magnificent stuff. These are the things that make the Bible real. And help us, encourage us. To, you know, when Admiral Fregard said, Ferry said, uh, Damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead. Oh, yeah, we cheer that bravery on. Why can't we do that with, with our faith? Why can't we say, I, you know, Stephen saw the stones, and that was his response, full speed ahead. He kept preaching while he's stoning them. He's forgiving them while he's stoning I would have been looking to catch one of those rocks and throw it back. And Stephen is, Lord, you gave us a pattern. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This is why we come to the Bible and expound on it verse by verse. We want to absorb as much of it as we can so God can use us as much as he can. And Satan says, yeah, that's all fine and dandy. 
You take the big verses. You take the big faith. I'm going to trip you up with little things. Because I believe, Satan says, you are shallow enough and stupid enough to fall for it. Now, you sitting there listening to me, you tell me if this does not happen in Christianity, in churches, amongst churchgoers, otherwise decent believers, getting tripped up over shallow and stupid things. It is painful to watch. I, I can't stop it. I've been preaching against it for 30 years, and it seems like I've gotten nowhere. And yet, I come across the scriptures that expound on these things. We must preach them. Just in, for instance, you know, you actually boast that there's somebody in your flock committing immoral acts, and you think it's grace to let this continue on. And Paul had to deal with that, too. I got more to say about Paul because he's a big part of what we're going through as Christians, New Testament Christians. God expected trusting faith from Gideon. He didn't find it, but he didn't walk away from him either. He stayed with Gideon and Gideon became a hero of the faith. He's mentioned in Hebrews 11. God expects us to have trusting faith, just like what he, looked, what he was looking for from Gideon, he is looking for from us. Perhaps not on the same scale. Perhaps on a larger scale. He's always looking for us. How many times did Jesus says, how, how is it that you have no faith? Oh, you of little faith. He expects more from us all the time. God is easily pleased with us. He's just never satisfied. Because the work demands this. That's why. It demands that we continue on until we get to heaven. Why trust a Christ who lets me suffer as a sheep amongst wolves, in fact, sends me out as a sheep amongst wolves. Why would I trust him? Paul had to deal with this too. 1 Corinthians 15, and why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? Paul is saying, why am I putting up with this life in Christ? Why am I getting stoned? Why am I being chased and hounded? Why are people arguing with me? Why would I make a point from Scripture? There's ten Christians that have to come up and say, Well, you said, why do I do this? Well, the 15th chapter of Corinthians is all about the resurrection. And the reason, what upset the apple cart for John and Peter here in Acts chapter four, 3 and 4 is that they preached the resurrection of Jesus Christ and salvation in his name. But there is no salvation in his name if there's no resurrection. So Paul comes along and he says, why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? Because of the resurrection. Because Christ is true. Paul had as many wounds on his hearts from Christians as he had on his back from unbelievers. But he knew what to do with these things. He also had friends who loved him. And faced peril for his sake in faith. Because God expected to find faith in Aquila and Priscilla. And he found it and he dispatched them to come to the aid of this great apostle Paul. And all the churches were grateful for this. Because had that not happened, God would have had to have redirect, redirected his energies and efforts to get some Hebrew apostle to Dare to go to the Gentiles and say to them, you do not need to be Jewish to be right with Jesus Christ. They tried to kill Paul for that. 
Romans 16, verses 3 and 4, greet Priscilla and Aquila. You can hear, you can hear the love come out. Because when, by the time Paul mentions them later on in his writings, later, latter years, he says, greet Prisca. That was that personal relationship. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. See how far in scope that is? Paul was suffering. God was saying, but I'm going to use you to reach the Gentiles. He told him from the very beginning. He said, Ananias, go tell Paul the things he's going to suffer for my name's sake, that I'm sending him to the Gentiles. Paul probably had no no, uh, understanding of how difficult it was going to be, but he also learned how God stayed with him throughout the whole thing. So, we, we, confront powerlessness with faith, which is powerful. So we conclude, true is God's word. True is my Bible. Gideon, my response to you, God's word is true. God's word and God, the God of the word, is worth serving. The word, the single word for worthwhile for us is worship. That's worship means he's worth it. Excluding everyone else. The hardships are worthwhile because the scripture is true. And the scripture is the mind of God, the word of God, the will of God. All packed into the scripture in various forms. We conclude that love, the love of God for sinners is a miracle. Can you explain it any other way? What's so special about you or me to a holy God that would make him love me? Why should he do anything for me? Romans chapter 8. We love this. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Because it's miraculous. It's not man-made. It's not made on earth. He says tribulation, distress, persecution, starvation, nakedness. Danger, death, sword. Shall any of these things separate me from the love of Christ? Wait a minute. If he loves me, isn't he supposed to be sparing me? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. Yeah, by by earth's terms, sure. By Satan's terms, of course. But not by the kingdom, because there's more to come. Should you ever find yourself feeling forsaken... Forsaken by God, but still clinging to the Jesus who loves you to save your soul. Then remember this, clinging to Christ is the very thing that defeats Satan. It is the very thing that sends him back to hell in the end. And it happens in stages. Revelation 12, this is Satan still has access to the throne of God to accuse the brethren. He's called the accuser of the brethren. He was accusing Job. Yeah, you, you boast on Job because, you know, you protect him. Let me get my hands on him. We'll see how much faith he's got. Well, Job won. It was a tough fight. Well, in Revelation, uh, Satan is finally cast out. No more audiences to accuse. This is the end. The culmination is coming. And what does he do? He persecutes. 
He persecutes Israel. He persecutes believers of Jesus Christ. Revelation 12 tells us the response of those believers being persecuted by an angry Satan. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. They knew there was more than this life. They knew that the suffering in this life had a time limit on it. And once this life is over, it is paradise. It is so wonderful, God doesn't even really bother to try to explain it. He just says, trust me. There's no crying there. There's no sorrow there. To trust God, no matter what, demonstrates that you know he was slain for you and he is risen. Everything I'm trying to say this morning has as its foundation the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, you know, there are things in our culture that are traditional and you really can't, you know, make too much of an issue of it, be too dogmatic. But, I don't, but as for me, personally, I'm very uncomfortable with calling Resurrection Day Easter. Because that name belongs to the goddess of fertility, comes Ashtoreth. And I don't see the association. Well, I know how it got there. I know how it crept into Christianity. And a little disturbing why it re- was, has been retained. I don't even like calling Israel Palestine, as many scholars do. It's not Palestine. It never was Palestine. Well... Uh, the resurrection, is what I'm saying, is a big deal. And that's why these men were in trouble. Revelation 5, 12, saying with a loud voice, typical of the book of Revelation, there's so much thundering and loudness in the book of Revelation. He says, you can't miss this. It draw, You know, sound, if it's loud enough, it physically involves you. They over, uh, I read that one, Revelation 5.12, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Well, if he's slain, how can he receive these things? Because he was slain, but he is not slain now. He is risen. And hell hates this. Evil is busy. Being evil in this life. We, we watch it. It's always going on. Sometimes it's a little bit louder than at other times. But we are to deliver the word of God. Even in the hail of stones. As referenced Stephen. <clears throat> I like this section in Revelation 13. This is Antichrist is on the scene. And he's been granted the ability to do lying wonders. They are miraculous. But they are false. They are lies. And it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. What? Well, you mean the saints are getting beaten by Satan and God granted this? He must have a big plan. He must have a bigger fish to fry than to swoop down and insulate and isolate me from these things. And authority was given to him. Over every tribe, tongue, and nation, Antichrist's reach is going to be global. Incidentally, there's more to the book of Revelation than prediction. There's so much more doctrine. The main thing of the Bible is to get the person of God. No matter what you're studying in the Bible, the purpose is to get to the person of God. Who he is, what's his response, what does he think of this. That's the same with my life. It continues... All who dwell on the earth, who worship him, that is Antichrist, who think he's worth it, 
whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So the Christians will be persecuted, but the world will love this guy. And Scripture does not, in and of itself, make life easier for the ones who believe it and study it and follow it. In fact, in many ways, it makes life more difficult for us. Thus, the cross. Take up your cross. Jesus says, take up your difficulties. They're going to be painful. And follow me. Again, Revelation chapter 10. So I went to the angel and said to him, give me the little book. And he said, take, eat it. And it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. God's will. God's word. It is sweet. It does, it, it, it is, but... It can make you sick for a time. Well, John was witnessing billions of people being slaughtered in the Great Tribulation period. The judgment of God falling on humanity. That would make any righteous person sick. What I'm saying is, as we devour Scripture, it is sweet to us. We know that. That is our first impression. But then there's this war with evil. And that makes us sick. That creates the bitterness, this contest, this struggle. Romans 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, that's the sickness of this life, are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Don't forget heaven. Don't get so busy with struggles in this life that you forget heaven. I would say, if I were preaching at a pastor's conference, I would say, don't get so... Caught up in ministry that you forget heaven. The realness of your faith. The difference between Martha before she was corrected and Mary. Martha was busy and she was rebuked. Because in her busyness there was self-righteousness. Make Mary help me. She's trying to dart work. And Mary sitting at the word of God and Jesus said she's chosen the right thing and I'm not taking it from her. Profound lessons are everywhere in Scripture, but we become too bitter with life without Christ sometimes to pick them up or to keep them in front of us. Again, Romans 8. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Well, what is that good? What good is it if I'm being flayed in life? Heaven. Ultimately, heaven. God's house. God's place, the place where there is no curse, where there's nothing wrong. The truth of Christianity rules out all of the world's false religions. False religion leaves a man in a disastrous state. We look at these religions of the world as Christians and we see it. What if you worshipped bean soup, but sincerely? You really thought that was God, being a bowl of bean soup. What if you were a murder bomber blowing up busloads of children? Wouldn't that prove your sincerity? My point is, sincerity means nothing if it is without truth. It must have truth. When God says, those who have a contrite heart, that is under the umbrella of obedience and faith in him, not apart from him. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Their choice. 
What are you going to do about that? I will post at the gate and I will try to intercept as many people as I can. I will engage lame humanity and try to be part of the solution. I'll come back to that uh, later on in, in, in the message. Have I started yet? This uh, spirit of the world, of course, and in her religions, and communism, incidentally, is a religion that pretends to be a political uh, doctrine. Islam is a political doctrine that pretends to be a religion. These are where the, the, emphasis, the, the dominant features of these things are. Islam wants to take over the world. That's not religion. That's imperialism. Closer to. Anyway, coming, that was side note. No charge for that one. But the spirit of the world is activated by Satan and his lies ever since Eden. And the only thing that can neutralize Satan's lies is the gospel. And the only ones that are entrusted right now with delivering the gospel are believers. And believers suffer. And believers are still expected to preach the gospel even if they feel forsaken. Or stay in the wine press and lament why the Bible studies are real good, but you're stuck in the wine press. Or be responsive to God, to his call, to his expectations. Peter was. They're going to get away without a beating this time. They won't next time, but they'll take beatings for Christ. Again, he upset the apple cart by preaching the resurrection, which we still must do. In times of war, in times of peace. That's the in-season, out-of-season. There's no, there's no interruption in this. Even if there are wars and rumors of wars, we are to preach the gospel. Because we know where everything is going. These apostles vigorously preached the gospel and suffered for the truth. And so Paul again says, why am I in jeopardy? The resurrection. I can't get away from it. Christ did die for me. Christ did rise no one else. He wasn't not resuscitated. Christ was not resuscitated. He was resurrected. He was no longer the same. When he rose again, it wasn't the same body. The rules had changed. And this is the difference between resurrection and why he is the first fruits. Because he wouldn't be the first fruits if he was resuscitated. Many people have, that, have experienced that. Even Lazarus who was raised from the dead, was not resurrected into a resurrected body. Uh, that would come later. Fact, fact, and the facts surrounding the fact of the resurrection, that, that makes it all worthwhile. And I think, I know I'm speaking for myself, sometimes I lose sight of the value of the resurrection in, in dealing with other matters. I mean, if you stopped me and said, are you saying, oh, of course I'd get that right. The resurrection is the foundation. Without that, we have no faith. But do I remember this when I'm preaching the gospel to somebody? Do I remember to say Jesus actually died on the cross and rose again? Or do I think, I don't need to do that because everybody's familiar with this nowadays and there's really no point. The challenges can be exciting. And so, to answer the question, <clears throat> why study, why trust God, the resurrection? Now we look at verse 13. 
Because everything I've said has, got, has something to do with what we are looking at. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Yeah, they had been with Jesus before he was died, before he died and after he died and rose again. And that is what they were looking at. They just saw the boldness There's so much more. These men, this was anointing like they never encountered ever, ever. And what are they going to do with it? Well, they're going to trash it. But not everybody does that. Peter, he, he knows the scripture now. And he refuses to be bullied by those who either, one, don't know the scripture, two, think they know the scripture but misapply it, or three, those who just uh, uh, refuse it altogether. He, being educated by the Son of God personally, face to face, not he alone, of course. A man was lame from birth. And Christians did something about it. Well, I mean, we have hospitals and doctors today that do something about these things, and we applaud that. But spiritually, who is lame? Who are the lame beggars today? Those who don't have the gospel of Christ. Paul said this, and such were some of you. When he, when he lists these immoral, uh, immoral behaviors, these sins that people commit, he says to the Corinthians, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Paul says you were not left spiritually lame. Christianity needs people who were once lame from birth, who are no longer lame, who have been restored to a state of, a, a relationship with God that man lost there in Eden. It says here in verse 13, and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men. Well, they weren't accredited according to the rabbis. Well, there's something to be said. I mean, we need to be accredited, but by who? Uh, just because these men did not go to seminary doesn't mean they were untrained or uneducated. Uh, there's no excuse for a Christian to be untrained or uneducated in the ways of Christ, which was Gideon's initial argument. Why should I be educated and trained in the ways of Christ? He doesn't do anything for me. Well, I don't want to go back to that, but I think I've covered it the best I'm going to do this morning. But they were not approved by those whom Jesus disapproved. You know what Jesus said about these guys? Jesus bypassed the rabbis, their writings, their lifestyles, Early in his ministry, he comes along and he preaches on this mount. And he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and scribes, you're not going to heaven. How profound is that? You've got to do better than your pastors, the corrupt ones. The people gobbled that up because they knew it. They knew these guys had become corrupt and there was nothing they could do about it. As it is in history, so often a minority rules the majority, a corrupt minority. These hand-picked apostles of Jesus Christ were homeschooled by God their Father in, in, in the things of the kingdom. And again, it does not mean if you, you do... I, I believe a Christian, should do, a Christian youth should do as best they can when learning anything, as best you can, 
Because you are an open vessel. And you want God to pour into you so that later he can pour out of you. But if you've got nothing, because you just, you know, I just want to sit here and do this and do that. Well, you got nothing. What can he do? He found a man in Paul that was, had, you know, had, could speak multiple languages, knew the Greek culture, was ready to embrace parts of Gentile cultures. I become all things to all men, Paul said. He was ready for this. He was fit for this. Anyway, the result of this preaching of Peter standing up, it says they marveled. Well, that's not enough. It's not enough to be impressed with the things of the Bible. Hollywood does that. They're impressed. You know what? We can make a movie out of this and make money. You have to be converted. Revelation 22, and the spirit and the bride say, come and let him who hears say, come and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Don't let some Calvinist come along and tell you that verse doesn't mean just what it means. It means just that man has free will and he can exercise it in the direction towards God. Jesus said, this is the work that you believe. That's the work. You want to know what work is involved in your salvation? You've got to believe. If you don't act on that, then you miss it. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. Well, is that said of me in the workplace, in the school, in the home? Does anybody know or notice that I've been with Jesus? They were not with Jesus past tense. They are with Jesus, present tense. Beware of a past tense relationship with Jesus Christ. Some believers have a past tense relationship. They were once all excited and into Christ. But life showed itself to be hard. The flesh fierce. And now they're not so excited. They don't have that same excited relationship that they once had. And they've stopped calling out for it because they felt, well, I've called so many times, nothing's happened. The fact that you're calling out so many times and continue to call out, something is happening. Hell is being rattled. And when you stop, then hell is satisfied. Good. We shut that one up. Revelation 2, 4. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Not present anymore. You've moved on to something else. Other things have blocked it out. The sooner the lost know that you are saved, the better for everyone. To try to sneak through, I don't want, and maybe, you know, certainly in North Korea, you, you might not want to apply this. But here, why not? Why not? I'm a Christian, and I don't share your view on those things. And if you don't like me, I'm ordered to love you. I don't really like you or love you, but I'm ordered to. <laughs> no, we can't. That, that wouldn't be right. But the world thinks that that's how it works. They think, that, they think that if you don't like someone, you don't have to love them. Christ says that's not true. Christ reverses it. He says you don't have to like them, but you do got to love them. What does that mean? You've got to look out for their best interests so far as I lead you to do this very thing. Verse 14. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. Well, they refused the logical conclusion. Like evolutionists who know that it's a theory that cannot be established as science. Theory is a part of science, but it is not science. You get to science with theories. Oh, let's try this out. And the ones that are eliminated, they're no longer science. 
You know, you can't boil a pot of water on top of snow. I mean, you need fire, you need heat. Now, I mean, maybe somebody's got some, well, there's a volcanic cavity there, some other bizarre thing. That's not the point. You can't do it, that's science. But if you continue to theorize and say, well, we think it can be done, and nobody else should have any alternative belief, this, this is the same hypocrisy. So we're not surprised when we find this wherever we find it. Verse 15, but when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, verse 16, saying, what shall we do with these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Well, if this wasn't true, why didn't somebody at that time write books to refute this? And why aren't those books being circulated today? Because it was true. These men are looking to cover up the truth and to spin the story of the truth, just like dirty politicians delight to do throughout history to this present day. How come no one suggested, I'll tell you what we should do since you asked, we should believe the Lord Jesus Christ. There's salvation and no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. But they didn't do that. Like Pharaoh, instead of turning to God, they turned further away from God. Verse 17. So, but so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them. And from now on, they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. It's the madness. They acknowledge that God has done something, and they take steps to oppose it. Jesus said, when Jesus was doing miracles, this is what they said about him. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. If you couldn't see it, but in back of them was a hand moving their mouth. That was Satan. That's Satan's doctrine. That's his approach. If we let him alone. So you go someplace and you're preaching the gospel. You, you start a church and you're, you're preaching the gospel. You think Satan's going to leave you alone? You decide you're going to serve in the church. You think Satan's going to leave you alone? You've been loyal in a church for 20 years or more. You think Satan's going to leave you alone? Grow up. He's not. If he messes with me, he's going to mess with everybody. If he messes with you, he's going to mess with everyone. Fortify yourself for that. You'll know it when your feelings start taking over the ship. You know he's starting to mess with your head. It's truth. Truth is to dictate our behavior. That's what's meant by sola scriptura. Scripture alone is the authority for how we live, how we go about life. And so instead of joining the truth, they took steps to keep others from benefiting from the truth. They, they hid the medicine. To them, the sick and tormented people of the world were not to be healed by, by Jesus. They could be healed by anybody else who wasn't healing anybody. They criminalized Christianity. This was the first step. God was slowly moving the church away from Hebrew, uh, Judaism. This is the beginning. This third chapter is the beginning of that. Verse 19. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God you judge. Uh, these, these religious leaders were trying to silence the very voices that God sent to save them. Peter gets in the last word. 
Here's a proverb that is quite challenging. If your faith in the day, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Well, I don't like that because I fainted in my life in the days of adversity. But I know that's right. And that gives me a shot next time. Peter's faith fainted when he stood by the fire pile and warmed himself. It ain't fainting. It ain't fainting on this day. This is obedience to God and disobedience to man. And that's what it's supposed to be. The Jewish midwives in Exodus and the, with the Pharaoh, they obediently disobeyed. They might call that civil disobedience today in, in the world. But we are, it goes deeper than that for us. There's someone else being obeyed. When we, the, the civil disobedience is disobeying the authorities. Obedient disobedience is obeying God and positioning yourself against anyone else who's trying to get you to disobey God. Aram and Jochebed, the parents of Moses, they hid the baby as long as they could. I, I don't know how Jochebed did that. I don't know how they put that boy in that crock-infested Nile and, and just said, okay, Miriam trots along. She's watching, you know. She's like, I, I might have to put my cape on and jump in there and kill one of those crocs and mess with my little brother. Well, that probably happened. Anyway, Mordecai, Mordecai, I ain't bound to that guy. That guy's a creep. He, he's sicko, and I'm not bound to him. And Mordecai wasn't ready for the, the backlash, but not right away. He, he got ready later on. Wicked people making wicked laws, nothing new about it. And when the, they can't enforce it, they invade your country. Verse 20, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Disciples saw Jesus do, they heard him say, and now they're acting on it. Verse 21, so when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. These men are, again, spiritually backwards. If you are spiritually backwards, you're going to be Satan's flunky. That, that's how it works. That's what he's looking for. If you're spiritually forward, he can't, he can't just waltz in there and make you a sock puppet for himself. Uh, evil has power, but it does not have almighty power. And God said, you know, don't worry about the ones that kill the body. Mm, you say that. I do kind of worry about that. <laughs> but I get it. And you do too. We worry about the one that has control over the soul. Verse 22. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Well, uh, we've covered this already through the story, uh, but the point is of this story, as we continue through it next session, the first Jewish believers did not realize how different they were. The distinctives were not handed to them. That would evolve. It would develop in time. Uh, it, it, it took, and they suffered through it. They were arrested. They were punished. They were beaten. Uh, this was God's first sovereign move to begin separating the church from its roots in Judaism. It is not disrespectful. It is the development of Judaism. That's why Paul says it's obsolete. He uses that in the English, that word. Judaism is obsolete. Not the moral laws, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not stay, but the, the rituals that, uh, that, that were so dear to them. 
they've been fulfilled in Christ. He is the Messiah. And now we are in the new covenant. The old covenant cannot stay. That old covenant was given to Judaism, but it was uh, like, like an acorn. An acorn is not going to stay an acorn. It's going to become a tree. And uh, that is a natural process. There's no violation in the nature of things. And so it is with God's word. This was God's plan. He let them know about it. And uh, it did not happen easily. The first Christians suffered to remain distinct. So I close with this verse. I'll just read Leviticus to you. If you'll stand... Romans 8, verse 17. Paul, that masterpiece to the Romans. He hadn't, he hadn't met these Christians yet. He wanted to get to them. He said, I could share in the blessings, that I can impart some spiritual truth to you. And he ends up writing this long letter that's a book. And he's very excited. He's, he's animated in this. He says, if then, heirs, heirs of God, and join heirs with Christ... If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. You take that verse and you think about it and you say, well, that's Christianity. But if you've not given your life to Christ, your sins are on you. And there will be no mercy for you unless you repent. Let's pray. Our Father, we know that Jesus Christ is risen. Your Holy Spirit has made that clear to us. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If you've been listening to me speak this morning, you've got to know that Christ was crucified for sinners as the Son of God and that he rose again as God the Son. But there's no benefit to you if you don't believe it and receive it. If you're not converted from this world to his world, to his kingdom, that is. If you make this prayer and you mean it, Christ will receive you. But if you choose to not make the prayer, you're not guaranteed another chance. You may get one. You may not. You're willing to play roulette with your soul because once... This life is over. There's no more. There's no purgatory. There's no holding tank. There's no second chance. This is it. You get one lifetime. You make this prayer in earnest and God will receive you. No matter what the world says. Satan is writing their script for them. God has written ours. If you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I break your commandments. And I come to you and only to you to be forgiven and to be received. There is nowhere else to go. No one else loves me enough to die in my place and take my punishment. And no one else is strong enough to rise again from the dead to prove that I can be forgiven. So I come to you and I ask you to forgive me. And from this day forward, be not only the one who died on the cross for me, but the one who is Lord over my life. And I give it to you. And Father, as far for us, we who do believe, we always want to be stronger and more like Christ every day of our lives. May it happen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.